So now, ladies and gentlemen, it is start time. Are you ready for start time? From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Koch. Rocky Erickson was a -a one-of-a-kind psychedelic pioneer who passed away last month at 71. We pay tribute to his tragic life and brilliant music with the 13-floor elevators and solo. I'll also talk with Jim about what he's learned in 19 years of investigating R. Kelly. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and even if you don't know the name Rocky Erickson, you certainly know some of the bands he's influenced, from ZZ Top to R.E.M. to Ockerville River. Later in the show, we'll delve into the influential and psychedelic world of Rocky Erickson, and we'll remember Dr. John, both legends we recently lost. But first, we're going to get a little philosophical about the nature of music, right, Craig? Yes, Jim, uh, we're going to talk about uh, the book you just released, uh, Solus, the Case Against R. Kelly, something uh, you've been working on for 19 years. Uh, It details uh, your incredible investigation of the R&B star's abuse of power. It seems like every every stone has been turned over here uh, in terms of what you went through to write this book, uh, how you approached it, uh, the results. What's the thing uh, you'd most like to share with our audience uh, that you've learned from this experience? So we started this show 21 years ago, a mere 14 of that on public radio. Uh, And it's because we believe in the power of music. What this book is partly doing is asking people to re-examine if if this music can save your life, can it also be the ultimate force to corrupt it and ruin it, uh, a source to pervert uh, all that is good about music. And that, that was, you know, it's never a book I wanted to write. We haven't talked very much uh, on Sound Opinions about um, uh, R. Kelly. You know, we did do a show separating the art and the artist. You know, I mean, the thought of, of, of hurting people, sexual assault, stealing their teenage years, uh, crushing the dream of singing when that was what, what you wanted to do. And then on top of it all, taking the joy of music out of someone's life. I mean, that's what our whole show's always been about. Yeah. And, and, and the flip side of that is just horrifying to me. Yeah, I mean, it's like stealing a piece of your soul. You know, the ending of your book, uh, not to play spoiler here, is just so... Uh, damaging uh you know to read that to just hear what this young lady went through and the fact that music no longer can sustain her that she wants to make it or listen to it let me tell her story greg this young woman from cottage grove heights she was a girl she was a teenager she was 15 she sings behind her best friend Aaliyah, paris amsterdam rome london tours america you know from 91 to 93 kelly initiates sexual contact with her, she's 15, and six of her 15-year-old friends, and he marries Aaliyah illegally in 94 when she's 15, and Tiffany was the first girl to try to stop him uh, that I know of. Uh, Files a lawsuit in 96, 
settles it out of court with a non-disclosure agreement of the kind we've seen many powerful, wealthy men like Harvey Weinstein use to silence their victims. Nineteen years later, a couple of months ago, I met with Tiffany. She spoke for the first time, and she never sang again. And not only that, but the ending you were referring to, she can't listen to music anymore at all. And I think about what your life, my life, and dare I say many Sound Opinions listeners' lives would be like to be robbed, you know, of your teenage years, to have this this, this guilt. I mean, Tiffany had tried to kill herself when this relationship ended. All of the horror of that, and then on top of it, not to have music. But I sat at an event in New York on the day of publication with Tarana Burke. You know, this activist from the Bronx launches hashtag MeToo in 2006. She -hmm. has started a civil rights conversation, movement, awareness that is spanning the globe with MeToo. And I said, you know, Tarana, I think one of the legacies you're leaving us is we are going to have to much more closely examine the art we consume that we love and see if it holds up to the standards by which we try to live our lives. You know, I think, you know, the industry, the music industry was operating under 20th century rules where transgression of this sort, maybe not to this scale, but of this sort was, um, you know, looked, we looked away. It was like, okay, this has nothing to do with the music. It's his private life. Um, you know, we can separate the art from the artist. Here you were working on this book for 19 years. You were detailing this these stories in various publications over that time the case was clear to anybody who chose to read uh, those stories this was a predator who was allowed to operate in broad daylight by an industry that was an enabler uh, complicit in what was going on with the radio industry the, the record industry making money off of R. Kelly records and then only when the money dried up did yeah. they turn their back on him? And I think that's a that's a key point. So, you know, at, at, at some point, this moral obligation that this industry has seems to be taken to task in this book. And not only the, the industry, but the media itself that covers that industry in 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 looking beyond this art versus artist paradigm and 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 realizing that, hey, this private life is equally critical in our ability to appreciate that music. When you're talking about somebody who is doing deeds that are so monstrous for so long in the full glare of the world spotlight, you know, a cut to the chase. I mean, I think uh, we will have no show and people will have no music, not to mention movies or visual Mm. art or anything else, if we're going to get into imposing a moral litmus test on everyone who creates art in the future. And I don't think Tarana Burke or the Mute R. Kelly women or any of the activists I've sat and spoken with, they're not saying that. This cancel culture people are talking about, the backlash, right? Bull. What they are saying is think about the art and realize it means something in the real world. I don't think it's about holding every artist up to moral purity. Uh, I, I don't know. I can still listen to James Brown, Led Zeppelin. Maybe someone can listen to Ryan Adams, right? And I know that it's intensely personal, this thing we love. That's why we launched Sound Opinions. If Kelly was your high school prom theme, if it played at your kid's graduation, if it was 
your wedding song, if it's powered every backyard barbecue and party you've ever been to, uh, Ignition, or I Believe I Can Fly, or Step in the Name of Love. You're, you know, being asked to reject part of your own life if you turn off that music. I don't think there's a right or a wrong. I just think we can never, in the music business, allow this sort of thing to happen for so long again and turn a blind eye. I don't think anywhere in life we should be allowing uh, that sort of predation to happen. And obviously the problem is bigger than music, <laughs> but our show's about music. Mm-hmm. You, um, you, you, you've obviously been in work at this for a very long time, and it must have been very frustrating at times to put in all the work and not see... You know, and see R. Kelly continuing to sell out shows and selling records and, you know, pushback from not only uh, the people who were there to protect Kelly, but also from the public at large in sort of their indifference to a lot of what you had been writing about in terms of just uh, speaking with their wallets. You know, we're, we're, we're still supporting this artist fully. Uh, in the last year or two, we've seen this turnaround in a, in a rather profound fashion. Uh, you know, a tipping point being, uh, you know, the, you know, seeing these women that you had been speaking with for years appearing on, uh, you know, television in the Sur Surviving R. Kelly documentary. Um, what was your perspective on that? You know, were you were you frustrated that it, it had taken so long? And what what could be what hopefully what lessons do you hope we will learn from this? Let's focus on what we do on this show. It is rock criticism music criticism, right? Um, I am really bothered, and this is probably the only, this is the only show that would care to ask about this. By the way, criticism failed. The number of our peers, some of whom who've been on our show, many of whom we respect, all of whom are our colleagues, who for years after his trial and acquittal in 2008, after the allegations continue to come, say, you know, despite all that unpleasantness, the man is a genius. Unpleasantness. Unpleasantness. Yeah. You're talking about the sexual yeah. assault of 48 women whose names I know. Lives ruined. But why does yeah. Pitchfork, Coachella, and Bonnaroo book R. Kelly in 2013? Why do so many critics, uh, yeah, I can name them, but I, why bother, uh, you know, continue to champion his music? You know, the only other critic besides you, whoever got this right from day one was Robert Criscow who is no fan of mine, but I'll give it to the Dean of American Rock Critics. He had Kelly's number from the beginning. You know, there's a lot of blame to go around. I think, uh, you know, I remember when the trial uh, came up in uh, 2008, the initial trial, um, you know, I, I, w I called up radio stations around Chicago because they're still playing Kelly's yeah. music. And you would they're ask still these it programmers why they were doing it. And the response was, well, the audience is demanding it. They want to hear this music. They're not telling us not to play it. They want it, you know, and if we don't play it, they're going to go to some other station that is playing it, so we need to compete, and therefore we're going to play it. It was strictly a matter of commerce. Again, there was no moral compass at work here at all, and I think a lot of critics were still operating on, a, on that level where it was all about the music, man, and we don't really want to know about this other stuff. You know, it's just, it's just going to muddle up the picture. And I think your book has highlighted the fact that, well, yes, indeed, it needs to muddle up the picture. It needs to be a consideration whenever we're, uh, we're talking about art and music. When we come back, the life and legacy of Rocky Erickson. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Lightning never strikes anymore. 
You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And Greg, I'm sad that we're doing this show now because the incredible, one-of-a-kind American musician, Rocky Erickson, has died at the age of 71. But this is one of those shows we have wanted to do, celebrating one of the most extraordinary musical catalogs in the history of rock and roll and a fascinating story. Absolutely. Not a household name, but uh, one of those musicians that when you do mention it to a, uh, a certain type of person, they, they, they just light up. Because this is one of those artists who I think define music. There's kind of music before Rocky Erickson and then after. Well, we're going to dive into that influence later, but we have to tell this fascinating story. And it begins when Roger Kynard Erickson is born in Dallas, Texas, Uh, moves with the family to Austin, which is he's synonymous. Uh, The way the MC5 is Detroit, Rocky Erickson is Austin, Texas, back when Austin was weird. As a kid, he is surrounded by music. His mother is a true character who was an opera singer, sang in church, music filled the house if you weren't doing her chores then the least you could do at home was sing a happy song and rocky gets into some trouble he's a high school kid at travis high school in austin texas and he is expelled because he grows his hair long to look like the rolling stones all right (laughs) It wasn't that, easy being a hippie in Austin, Texas. Oh, no. Austin yeah. wasn't quite weird enough yet. Uh, Rocky's kicked out of school. Uh, but he's already writing songs, uh, singing, playing guitar. Uh, he's written a song as a teenager called You're Gonna Miss Me. And it's a minor hit for a garage band known as The Spades. You're gonna wake up one morning as the sun greets the dawn. Now, when he joins the 13th Floor Elevators and records that song and it becomes, uh, it makes the charts, it becomes a pop hit. You know, it's on the Nuggets album as one of those great one-hit wonder American garage bands of that psychedelic moment in 1966. Lenny Kay loves You're Gonna Miss Me and ZZ Top, Billy Gibbons, when he was on our show, talks about everything for him started when he hears You're Gonna Miss Me. Rocky's voice, for instance, is unearthly. One of the greatest voices in rock history. And uh, combined with uh, Tommy Hall's rather fascinating poetry, his lyrics mm-hmm. are uh, still as robust and vital today as they were when they first came out in 66. Yeah. What is extraordinary about the 13th floor of Elevators and that song? Um, for one thing, it's undeniably, it's, it's Rocky's voice. You know, his hero 
was Little Richard. That incredible, powerful sensuality and soulfulness that came from Little Richard. He also loved James Brown, but... There's another Texan, Greg, whose voice he very much recalls. Buddy Holly. I want to love you night and day. You know my love will not fade away. Oh, well, you know my love will not fade away. Buddy Holly. Because there's also this plaintive sad, mournful loneliness. You know, the thing about you're going to miss me He's been disrespected by the girl he loves. You know, his high school crush wants nothing to do with weird, long-haired Roger, right? And so, you know, there's partly this anger. You're going to miss me, babe, right? But also this kind of vulnerability, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. That that song's fascinating because I think it it distills what uh, made Rocky Erickson such an amazing singer. I mean, think about that scream at the start. I mean, that is punk rock. Uh, 15 years before anybody knew what that meant. And then, as you said, the, the lilting melody, the sadness, the melancholy, you know, straight out of Buddy Holly. So the ability to combine those two singing styles, which seem to be 180 degrees apart, into one voice, into one song, that, that says it all to me about what Rocky was great at. Now, we have to tell the story of the 13th Floor Elevators. Rocky's this young up-and-comer. He's written this song. It's been recorded by the Spades. There's almost a sort of Texas supergroup. Even as young men, these guys have played around in other bands in 1965. Stacy Sutherland, an incredible guitarist, who uh, is trying to do Dwayne Eddy gone evil, okay, on the guitar. Bassist Benny Thurman, drummer John Ike Walton, who I got to interview a bit, and uh, this character, okay. The band comes together in Port Arthur with a sort of visionary guru lyricist uh, who is an undergrad at the University of Texas in Austin. And they live next door in Port Arthur to this woman named uh, Janice Joplin. She was going to be the original 13th Floor Elevators vocalist, and she so loved Rocky after he joined that she was going to sing side by side with him. But then, of course, she went off and did her own thing. Anyway, the other guy I was mentioning, the -the behind-the-scenes character, Tommy Hall, he's older. He has uh, taken to the psychedelic writings of Timothy Leary and Aldous Huxley, Peyote is widely available in Austin starting in 1961, and LSD acid begins to circulate in 1965. I think it's easy to trivialize now the spiritual element of psychedelia, because this notion that we could take this drug and journey toward the white light, as Aldous Huxley said, to see God, okay, Um, you know, in in 65, this is before the summer of love, 67, right? To be doing this in Texas and to be doing it as part of a spiritual quest 
right? Mm -hmm. On the liner notes of the very first uh, 13th Floor Elevators album, Tommy Hall, the lyricist, writes this manifesto. Recently, it has become possible for man to chemically alter his mental state. All right? (laughs) And the band he envisions is going to provide the soundtrack. You know, the 13th Floor Elevators sign to a label that is run by another Texas character. Texas is lousy with these personalities. His name is Leyland Rogers. You might recognize that last name, right, Greg? Yeah, Kenny Rogers. Uh, what is what's the relationship? Kenny Rogers' Kenny. brother. <laughs> Kenny Rogers' brother. Yeah. You know, and Kenny, Kenny Rogers is a straight arrow, right? You know, yeah. I, I don't know if folks know. Everybody loves the Big Lebowski, and there's that wonderful, ridiculous psychedelic scene with. Uh, I just dropped in to find out what condition my condition was in. You know, um, uh, and that's that. That is that is Kenny's first band, the first edition, right? Woke up this morning with the sundown. Shining in So Leyland, his brother, with this uh, international artist label uh, based in Houston, is trying to get a slice of this hot new teen psychedelic rock action, right? His brother's in that band. They sign a bunch of other bands, The Golden Dawn, Bubble Puppy, Lost and Found, The Red Crayola, but the 13th Floor Elevators, because of Rocky's vocal on You're Gonna Miss Me, and it's Rocky's song, uh, You're Gonna Miss Me. He's already written it. Uh, You know, they have this national hit, and they become stars. You know, the rest of the psychedelic sounds of the 13th Floor Elevators, that debut album, it's really fascinating to me. Uh, And, you know, I, I wrote a book about psychedelic rock, so excuse me for geeking out. One of the hallmarks of the psychedelic trip, but so I've read, is synesthesia. You begin to see sound as colors and hallucinations and visions. And I don't know about you, Greg, but I think the extraordinary thing about the two studio albums, recorded on three tracks, we're talking very primitive, uh, that the 13th Floor Elevators made at the start, um, is the way they use the music and Tommy Hall's lyrics to evoke this psychedelic experience even if you are not on drugs. It is a very visual music. I'm talking songs like Roller Coaster and you feel like you're on one. Reverberation, right? And and yeah. your ears are reverberating, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, they are they are painting pictures with sound. You know, we're talking about an inner journey here as much as an outward one. You know, it was all about exploring your mind. And I mean, it, you know, roller coaster is kind of a manifesto in that regard. You know, you got to open up your mind and let everything come through. Let everything come through. Everything. You know, we're just know. only seeing a very small part of the world in our conscious mind but when we take these these drugs that are taking us on this journey uh, we're seeing everything and that's uh, that's the key and it make no mistake uh, rocky was 100% embracing tommy hall's acid proselytizing rocky has said the music 
makes you see things if you want to. Um, I also have to say about Tommy Hall, he is the first and I believe last uh, great rock and roll electric jug player. <laughs> he is on stage with the element. He has no talent, right? He, he's a good writer. The liner notes and the lyrics are trippy and wonderful. But, uh, you know, he wants to be on stage. So, you know, the elevators are churning it out, this Texas supergroup with this incredible vocalist up front. And, and he's playing the jug. He's holding the microphone at the mouth of the jug. And there's much debate among the elevator's obsessives over how much of it is just Tommy Hall going with his mouth and how much of it is the sound of the jug. In Elevator's Legend, the jug uh, was where the band kept their drug stash. <laughs> you know? yeah. But in, in retrospect, in 1965 and 66, this sound of the jug underneath this rip-roaring rock and roll, I'm sorry, but that is what Brian Eno did with the analog synthesizer later right. with Roxy Music or with uh, Perubu. It's especially true on their second album that uh, they, they basically had two studio records. Uh, Easter Everywhere, apparently... Uh, one microphone was devoted to the jug. <laughs> they put the jug over the microphone to create this reverberating sound. And even though the first album was called The Psychedelic Sounds, etc., the second album, Easter Everywhere, is where the real acid heads gravitate toward because yeah. that's the record that has the weirdest, spookiest uh, vibrations of, of not only that this band, but maybe of that entire era. Absolutely true, Greg. And again, to say, Psychedelic Sounds comes out in 66. Easter Everywhere comes out in 67. This is all months before the explosion of the Summer of Love with, you know, uh, famously Sgt. Peppers, right? They're ahead of the curve, and they're in... Austin, Texas, uh, and they're making this uh, super uh, cinematic, psychedelic music. The Rolling Stones uh, gave them a nod uh, by rewriting uh, the elevator's uh, Monkey Island. <laughs> as their song, Monkey Man. And it is said, uh, and I have had a member of Pink Floyd, although they don't brag about this, tell me, uh, we were inspired to write the main theme song for the soundtrack they did for more. From the elevator song, Roller Coaster. So the influence is happening even in 66, 67, 68 among some super respected peers. Another song uh, that we have to talk about is Fire Engine. I first heard this song via a bootleg from CBGB television performing that song. And then I discovered, oh, it's it's that band, the 13th Floor Elevators. And, oh, that's the band that's on Nuggets that does You're Gonna Miss Me. But Fire Engine is fascinating. So the single most intense psychedelic drug is called DMT. 
It is organic. It is uh, Terence McKenna, the psychedelic philosopher, wrote a lot about it. His theory was the primitive cavemen, the Neanderthals, uh, were foraging for food and they ate some mushrooms that happened to be of the right variety. And then they mm. saw God and invented the wheel and found fire. <laughs> <laughs> okay. DMT is different from other chemical uh, psychedelics or even mushrooms in that it is an intense 10-minute trip where people who uh, take this drug see the elves that run the machinery of the universe. This is this is the hallucination Terence McKenna uh, writes about at length in a book called Food of the Gods. And what's, what's fascinating is like 9 out of 10 people who've taken DMT have had the same hallucination. So whatever is behind this... Anyway, Rocky <laughs> writes this song, right... And the lyrics are, let me take you to the empty place in my fire engine, right? And he drags out those words. And, you know, what he says, he's not singing empty place, he's singing DMT place. Let me take you to that DMT place in my fire engine. And it's just, I mean, what an amazingly weird song. Let me take you to the empty place in my You know, law enforcement has them as marked men in Texas. I got to interview uh, bassist Danny Galindo at one point. He joined the group in 67. He said, being in the 13th floor elevators was being in Jesse James's gang. Mm. We had the cops after us everywhere we went. I mean, and this is at a time, literally, when you've got your hair to your collar, you're stopped on the street by many law enforcement officers in Texas. These guys are riding around a van with a stash of drugs in a jug, you know, and they're on the charts, and they're urging, in no uncertain terms, you know, kids, tune in, turn on, drop out, in the lyrics, in the liner notes. Um, This continual harassment results in Rocky Erickson getting busted once for marijuana, and then the second time. This is before three strikes, you're out, but it's 67, 68 in Texas, Texas. And uh, Rocky's going away to do very hard time. You take up the sad tale of Rocky and the law. Well, you know, the ugly side of this uh, story begins here. Rocky is basically shuttled off to Rusk State Hospital for the criminally insane. Rather than a prison term, they throw him in this uh, mental hospital, basically, where he's mingling with child rapists and murderers uh, and was treated with tranquilizers and shock therapy. So what's better, federal prison or a mental hospital? I mean, it's a it's a brutal choice. Neither one of those uh, options sounds very palatable. Did, did you ever did you ever swing by uh, Rusk when you were in Austin for South by? I I have seen it from the outside. So have it, I. I made the pilgrimage once. Quite imposing. 
I barbed can't, wire. I can't even imagine what it's like. His lawyer gave him some bad advice. You know, they said, look, if you admit guilt here or you try to fight this, forget about fighting it. You've been busted yeah. cold. They said, look, the only way we get you out of this uh, with any chance of coming out is you, you, you plead insanity. So right. Rocky, in many interviews subsequently, including one with me, says, I was acting, but I think I was too good an actor. Now, I, I also yeah. saw I also saw his medical record from Rusk mm-hmm. State Mental Hospital, and there was a diagnosis of organic brain damage. I don't even know what that means. And early onset schizophrenia. Here he yeah. is in his early 20s. When schizophrenia befalls young men, and it's primarily men, it comes on in the early 20s. And, uh, you know, we saw that happen with Sid Barrett of Pink Floyd. We saw that happen with Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, famously, sadly. We saw that happen with Skip Spence of Moby Grape and the Jefferson Airplane. I mean, and the fourth famous quote-unquote acid casualty is Rocky Erickson, always in those stories. But how much of it was Rocky's drug use, and he bragged, I, I did acid every day. He testified at the trial, you know, at his own trial. He said, I did acid at least 300 times. Uh, whether that was true or not, uh, and how much of it was, you know, actual mental illness versus drug craziness versus acting, I don't think even the people who cared for him for 50 years really know. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, but the, at the same time, they were proselytizing about this. Uh, they were talking publicly. It up, yeah. They're on Dick Clark, you know, American Bandstand, National Television. Who's the head yeah, man, the head gentlemen? Man. Group here, gentlemen. Well, we're all heads. All right. Well, let me just stay loose with you for a second. We're all heads. We're you know? all heads, Dick. <laughs> yes. uh, let, let me say that again. Double meaning. The 13th floor elevators played American Bandstand. How it's weird incredible. is that? It's incredible. I think it shows you. Uh, where this band was potentially heading. I mean, they had a sound that, even though it had some commercial possibilities, was steeped in underground culture, was shaping the underground culture, and and then suddenly it all went away because uh, Rocky is sent off to the mental hospital. Yeah, Rocky does time. He's locked up. Um, you know, the rest of the elevators come to a bad way. Sutherland, this incredible guitarist, is shot to death uh, by his wife. Tommy Hall, the jug player, the proselytizer, philosopher, moves to San Francisco, uh, which is not a good place for him to be, in the summer of love and stays there for decades, uh, you know, one step above homelessness. Our friend mm-hmm. Bill Bentley, the Warner Brothers publicist and Texas historian of music uh, did a fascinating interview with him there in 1990. I understand he's doing okay now, and the elevators have come together to actually back Rocky, you know, the surviving members uh, in recent years, one of many groups that have. But the elevators peter out without Rocky. That's right, Jim. And after a break, we're going to pick up Rocky's story after he gets out of Rusk and his music takes a dark turn. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. He is Greg Cott, and we are paying tribute to Rocky Erickson. Let's pick up our conversation at a point where things are really going south for Rocky. When Rocky Erickson is sent away to the mental hospital in 68, he doesn't reemerge into into public life until 1972. He's in there for four years. He reemerges into a very, very different world. Uh, The psychedelic revolution has been crushed by the government, essentially. Yeah. The, man. the idea of this sound as being a, a potentially world-changing sound has sort of been uh, completely wiped off the charts. And we, we're starting a, a new era. 
And, and Rocky Erickson, frankly, is lost. He's obviously been damaged by his experience. Yeah. And he, uh, you know, he walks into this world wondering, what the hell do I do now? But yet there's something still there. There's still a, a spark of genius, but it's mingled in with this now horrifying visionary mind of his, seeing all these kind of hallucinations. He claims to be visited by extraterrestrials. You know, he sees himself as a a Christian initially, a friend of the devil, and an alien, all rolled into one. I feel like a monster. This was what he told an interviewer yeah. in the late 70s But you know, uh, you know about I, this period. I, I later did a very brief interview with his mother, Evelyn, and mm-hmm. uh, mom told me, the horror of Rusk, I think, made fantasy easier to deal with than reality for Rocky, which I thought mm-hmm. was really interesting. Because you also he also is loving, back in the day when there's the 4 o'clock movie on all the local TV stations, right? Rocky's right. always at home watching the horror movie of the day. Again, how much is fantasy and how much is real terror in this man? Well, that's the artist, you know? The right. artist kind of almost adapts to what... You know, is going through his head. And in this case, you know, you're right. I mean, the whole idea of like dealing with sort of a uh, an alternative life and alternative worlds uh, made a lot of sense. You know, it makes sense, too, that he entitled his first band Bleeb Alien, Bleeb being an anagram for Bible. You know, Bible alien. I mean, that's kind of the church of the mind with one minister and one congregation member, Rocky Erickson, you know. With the Uh, horror movies played in the background. I think of demons. Don't shake me, Lucifer. Bloody hammer. If you have ghosts, I walked with a zombie. Well, you think about those first two songs that he records after he gets out of Rusk. Uh, Doug Somm producing. A uh, great Temple, Texas musician, yeah. Right. Red Temple Prayer, Two-Head Dog, uh, you know, which is just an absolutely horrifying uh, vision. I've been working with the Kremlin with a two-headed dog. It sounds like a great <laughs> horror movie. <laughs> And then there's Starry Eyes, right, which is right, pure right. Buddy Holly. There's that Buddy Holly thing again. You know, so the, the the two sides, the yin, the yang of where Rocky's head is at right after he gets out of Rusk is distilled in those first couple of records. Uh, you know, he's touring uh, off and on during the, during the 70s. The songs are starting to flow out. They have similar themes in terms of these monster horror alien scenarios. Mm-hmm. The song that really kills me from this era, though, Jim, you mentioned it, Bloody Hammer. Mm-hmm. That is basically a blow-by-blow account of life inside Rust, and it, it is just heartbreaking to hear that song. I mean, it you know, it starts out, Demon is up in the attic to the left. My eye turns to the left to say no. You said, first, I am the special one. I never hammered my mind out. 
I never have the bloody hammer. The whole song is about this notion of if I get that bloody hammer, I'm gonna I'm gonna beat my brains in, and you know it it is just a a horrifying vision of what's going through his life. They right. endure more of these drugs they have me on, more of this electroshock therapy. What, what, what I'm seeing in my head. It's amazing that some great art came out of it. The songs it that is. came out of this era, they're melodic, they're catchy, there's edge to the guitar playing, oh, and yeah. at the same time, you listen to the words and you go, wow, yeah. what, what a ride. You, know, you, well, you just don't want to be in this person's head. You know, still, the mind is working, the, the songs are catchy, melodic, as I said, uh, you've got a guy who's standing up for his rights. When you think of a song like Don't Slander Me, Don't Slander you know, Me, Don't Slander Me, This is a man who is fighting for you know his his rights his reason to exist his his dignity in the face of a world that is basically telling him you have no rights we can send you to the mental hospital anytime we want we yeah. can take away part of your brain i i think a, a lot of uh, punks and post punks and outsiders in general related to rocky's music from this period because of what he personally yeah. was going through and how he channeled that into his music uh, in 1989, Rocky has uh, one of several hobbies. He's got uh, a dozen TVs in his house, and they are all tuned between channels. So the white noise fuzz is on the screen, kids, mm-hmm. back when there was broadcast television. T- tuned full volume, 12 of them simultaneously. His other hobby is he likes to collect mail and tape or thumbtack the junk mail to the walls of his apartment. Not a good idea, Rocky, because he begins collecting all the neighbor's mail, right? Yeah. So he's busted, this time, for federal mail theft. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that's uh, absurd. It is absurd. And this is when Bill Bentley comes in. Rocky needs cash, right? Rocky needs to be kept alive. Rocky needs some legal help. And Bill Bentley, former Texas journalist, at that point, you know, one of the most respected publicists in the music industry with Warner Brothers Records, says, I'm going to reach out to some of the people who love Rocky's music. By then, I heard a couple of tribute records, and I said, well, if, if, any, if the world ever needed to know about someone they might have missed, it's Rocky Erickson. So we started making that record. It just grew into something beyond my wildest dreams because so many great bands wanted to participate. It's spiritual music. Probably the most spiritual rock and roll I think that was ever written and played. I can't think of anything else that went so directly to that. So Where the Pyramid Meets the Eye is basically a compilation album, of a tribute album, to uh, Rocky Erickson and was organized by Bill Bentley, who had seen one of the very earliest 13th Floor Elevator shows way back in 1965 and had been a fan ever since working in the record industry and got to meet a few people along the way. Here are the people who readily stepped up uh, to cover one of uh, Rocky's songs for this this tribute album to to an artist who at that point had sort of been written out of the history books in terms of one of the great rock and rollers of all time. ZZ Top covers this music. Yeah. 
John Wesley Harding, uh, Primal Scream, Bongwater, Julian Cope, one of your favorites, Jim. Yeah. Doug Somm, again, stepping up to the plate for his old friend. Richard Lloyd of television, Jesus and Mary Chain, T-Bone Burnett, Thin White Rope, you know, then a, a yeah. happening band yeah. from, from the desert out in the West Coast. Greg, you're forgetting the biggest name. Bentley is doing publicity for R.E.M., and R.E.M. steps up in a well, big way. of course. You know, Peter Buck yeah. would talk for hours about Rocky Erickson long before anybody else. It's only fitting that they should come in and do uh, I Walked With a Zombie yeah, in, in yeah, tribute. Yeah, yeah. I Walked With a Zombie I Walked With a Zombie the story sort of has a happy ending here, Jim, and I, I think it's, it you know, you mentioned the Austin scene stepping up for him. All That May Do My Rhyme was a record that came out in 95, sort of a compilation record of Erickson material put together by the Butthole Surfers, King Coffee. His brother Sumner eventually took over all of Rocky's uh, legal and medical issues. His mother had been overseeing him for a number of years, and his schizophrenia had just uh, gotten the better of him. When Sumner took over in 2001, granted legal custody, uh, his life was turned around. Uh, he started performing uh, more regularly. He played 11 gigs in Austin in 2005. In 2006, he played his first gig outside of Austin, Texas, at the Intonation Festival in Chicago. You and I were He's there. at the Coachella Festival He's at the Royal Festival Hall in England, mm -hmm. headlining festivals in Finland. And in 2010, yet again, more of the current generation of rock musicians step up to the plate and help him out. Ockerville Rivers, Will Sheff producing, and his band playing on True Love Cast Out All Evil. And you mentioned that the 13th floor elevators did indeed uh, reunite. In 2015, many of the surviving members got together with Erickson to perform at the Levitation Festival uh, in Austin. Uh, so Rocky went out and knowing that his music was loved and appreciated and actually was a vital and dynamic performer. I think, you know, the contrast between, say, how Brian Wilson is able to, yes. uh, you know, deal with being on stage even to this day versus the way Rocky seemed to be really enjoying the moment and, and playing hard. And, and that voice, Jim, it never left him. He still had that incredible power right to the end. Please, Judge. Don't send her, keep that boy away. It's a society I wish you let him stay. Please don't give him time. Keep away. Rocky Erickson, dead at the age of 71. That is Right Place, Wrong Time from the great Dr. John, one of his biggest hits. The reason we're playing it, of course, is that Dr. John, a.k.a. Mac Rebenick, has passed at the age of 77, died of a heart attack on June 6th. 
Mac Rebinick, the great New Orleans pianist, singer, songwriter, producer, half dozen Grammy Awards, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, appeared in The Last Waltz, but man, oh man, you know, even before the recognition came to Dr. John, he'd already had an amazing career writing songs, producing records, playing in bands, met Professor Longhair, um, was a ace studio musician in New Orleans, and then moved to Los Angeles in the 60s when he became part of the infamous wrecking crew that played on all those recording sessions uh, out of Los Angeles. And it was almost a, an accident that he had a solo career. He never mm -hmm. envisioned himself as a front man, but he sort of reinvented himself as Dr. John, the Night Tripper. And that first record, I don't think he ever planned on making another one after Gree Gree, yeah, yeah. Uh, but what a record that was. You know, the persona on stage, you know, the feather boas, the gems, the bones, the amulets, the, you know, the smoke, he you know, wearing those uh, Mardi Gras headdress, you know, it was just a real trip on every level. At the same time, extremely accomplished musician. That record that he put out uh, a few years later, Dr. John's Gumbo, was for many people an introduction to New Orleans music. Yes. Followed immediately by In the Right Place, which was recorded with his pal Alan Toussaint, who was on this very show waxing yes. rhapsodic about the musicianship of, of, of Dr. John uh, a few years ago. He had Alan Toussaint on the record, The, the Meters, and, and that led to Right Place, Wrong Time, and also Such a Night, his biggest hits. He continued to make records up through 2014. He had some issues with heroin addiction that he finally shook and was able to tour pretty regularly up through 2017, his health finally failing him in, in the last few months. But he leaves us with an incredible body of music. I go back to, to the first album, Gree Gree, and the incredible original composition, I Walk on Gilded Splinters, which was covered by everyone from Cher to Jello Biafra. And it really gets into that swampy, eerie vibe that the Night Tripper, as Dr. John called himself back then, was so good at conjuring in his music. Here's Dr. John with I Walk on Gilded Splinters on Sound Opinions. Some people think they jive me, but I know they must be crazy. Don't see their misfortune, else they just too lazy. Je suis a grand zombie, my yellow belt of choice on. Ain't afraid of no tomcat, fill my brains with poison. Walk through the fire, fly through the smoke. See my enemy at the end of the road. Walk on pins and needles, see what they can do. Walk on gilded splinters with the cane of the Zulu. I walk on gilded splinters in tribute to the great Dr. John, dead at the age of 77. Now we want to hear from you. Do you have memories of the life and music of Rocky Erickson or Dr. John? Share them with us. Call and leave a message on our hotline at 888-859-1800. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, we're nearing the halfway point of 2019, and you know what that means. Our best, best. albums of the year yes. so far. Download or stream Sound Opinions wherever you get your podcasts. 
The show is produced by Brendan Banasak, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, and Andrew Gill. Sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. To Scott from Seattle. Thanks for airing the Mavis Staples interview again. Man, what a beautiful spirit. I mean, yeah, I just can't I just can't get over it. Every time I hear her, it just gives me chills. Just her talking, her singing is just amazing. I can listen to her all day. Often do. Anyway, thanks again for that fantastic interview and Made the staples for president. You're not alone. I'm with you. I'm lonely too. What's that song? Can't be sung. This is Linda in Atlanta, Georgia. The best Mavis Staple interview I have ever enjoyed. That was the best. And I am so thankful that I pulled over on the side of the road just to listen to that episode. It was just amazing. I thank you so much. I know a place Patrick calling from Detroit, Michigan, the Motor City. I am just calling while you're doing your Mavis Staples interview again to tell you what a great job you guys do. Love this interview. Of course, I love Mavis. And keep up the good work. Terrific, terrific. Uh, and, and riveting. I can't get out of the car. I got to stay till 3 o'clock to listen to your whole show. Thank you, guys. Yes, Hi, this is Laurel from Tallahoma, Tennessee. 
I thoroughly enjoyed your show on Mavis Staples. I have always loved their music, and I don't remember how many years ago it was, I got to see Mavis at Bonnaroo, which is right down the street from my house, on a Sunday afternoon. It was like a religious experience. Beautiful, all of the words that Mavis had to say and all of the songs that she sang were so moving. I will never forget it. Thank you so much for covering her. She is a gem. Thank you. Bye-bye. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.